Hey, this is Gavin Jackson with the South Carolina Lead, and we're continuing our summer look at quote-unquote interesting stuff. Professor Eric Sean Crawford is the director of the Charles W. Joyner Institute for Gullah and African Diaspora Studies at Coastal Carolina University and holds a Ph.D. in musicology from the Catholic University of America. The University of South Carolina Press just published Professor Crawford's book, Gullah Spirituals, in which Crawford traces Gullah Geechee songs from their beginnings in West Africa to their height as songs for social change and black identity in the 20th century American South. Join us for this insightful conversation on an important aspect of South Carolina's identity. Professor Eric Sean Crawford, thanks for joining us to talk about your book, Gullah Spirituals. I'm so happy to be here. Well, I know we're doing this virtually, but it's good to talk to you about this. Start us off. Tell us what drew you to produce this book and focus in on St. Helena Island in Beaufort County. What was that journey for you? It, it began about 2007. I had a, a master's student. I was at Norfolk State University. And she was doing this book on Gula Gala or something. <laughs> and um, as I began to uh, read her thesis and so forth, I began to understand that there were songs that I had heard as a child uh, growing up, like A Road Jordan Road or Nobody Knows the Troubles I've Seen, that came from this little place, St. Helena Island. And I became intrigued. Um, these songs were recorded in 19, so 1867 in this one document, Slave Songs of the United States, which is sort of the beginning point of Unequal Spirituals. And so it began my quest to visit St. Helen Island and determine if these songs were still being done and still sung there. Yeah, you mentioned that music from St. Helena Island is the most widely studied body of Negro spirituals in America. So how do you see your research, this book on Gullah spirituals, fitting into that musical, the essentially the cultural canon uh, that this has to offer? Yes, you know, it's amazing. We know the words Negro spiritual, but not Gullah and Geechee being sort of the origins. And just by happenstance, you know, the first battle, one of the earliest battles of the, of the Civil War was when that's Port Royal experiment place here. And um, because of that, these white missionaries came down and recorded, and, and the songs they heard, they transcribed them. So it's, despite a quirk of fate, history is sort of this central spot uh, where all these, where many of these songs come from. And so for me, it's just about reconnecting these songs to the Gullah Geechee past and the Gullah Geechee origins. Definitely want to talk about Port Royal in a moment and the Penn School. But uh, just talking about the incredibly rich detail in this book, you know, you did focus on St. Helena Island of all the sea islands. And, and you know, the region and looked at several West African song traditions, including rowing and shouting songs through the role the traditional music takes on through the World Wars, Prohibition and the Civil Rights Movement. And it's fascinating to see that progression. But start us at the beginning with the original purpose of these spirituals. You're right. You know, these these uh, spirituals were functional songs, really, you know, and, and I began by going through the unrowing, you know, these slave men who were unrowing, sort of a, um, a traveling service from uh, oftentimes from Charleston down to um, Georgia or even uh, Florida. And in these long trips, they would sing and they had to sound happy. And so you have these oarsmen rowing and singing in motion. And as they would sing, oftentimes they would talk about their passengers, you know, in, in song. And so a unique body of songs that has been forgotten, probably the most famous being Michael, Row the Boat Ashore, which is, you know, the most famous one. Yeah, I mean, really uh, putting it there and, and really just 
uh, I guess, the, the, the most functional songs right there, just to get through those brutal days in those early times, and then also to deal with oppression later on in the future as well. But I want to talk about what you were talking about when we said uh, the Battle of Port Royal, looking at the Civil War, which started in South Carolina in April 1861, and then you jump to November of that year, and Union troops got a huge victory with the Battle of Port Royal that results in pretty much the liberation of St. Helena and other sea islands. And the Port Royal Experiment, as abolitionists called it, it became kind of a dress rehearsal for Reconstruction. Now, I said all this because you have two full chapters dedicated to the Penn School, uh, which in 1862 becomes the first structure in the South built just for the education of former slaves. So really jump in there and tell us how that affected their culture and, and maybe try to, some of those white missionaries, like you said, maybe try to change that culture. Or how did it play out at the Penn School? Very complex um, history there. You had Laura Town, who was the first principal at Penn School, who really encounters these um, early students who had never been in any kind of a school, or probably had never been in one place for a long period of time. And she's trying to really change their culture. There are accounts that she's teaching, and they would get up and just go outside, <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. know. But the the main concern, her main concern, was their language. And for her, in order to get those students to quickly adapt to a northern curriculum, you know, uh, she had to really forbid them from speaking Gullah. And that would not just affect their speaking, but of course, their, their singing too, and their songs too. They made remarkable progress. Those students were quickly caught up but at a, a loss oftentimes of their culture. They couldn't sing and, and uh, clap the old shouting songs, which were deemed as being um, from the devil and, and, and not being proper songs. Because oftentimes principals were Quakers or, you know, and so they had a very strict way of their definition of, of um, worship. And of course, songs should not be emotional. Quite the opposite when you listen to these spirituals too. But did that that didn't seem to quash too much of the culture? I know you you mentioned it kind of did trickle through the generations and affect some aspects of it. But but they managed to get through that essentially and, and preserve still some of their uh, their historical songs. Yeah, the the uh, a Penn School a principals in Lower Town and the Rosa Cooley shows those um, spirituals that were calmer, slower, not emotional. So the um, the uh, students couldn't clap and couldn't move. And those were the songs that survived. The emotional songs, the faster paced ones, those were discouraged. And over time, many of those were lost, unfortunately. Well, let's jump more into the 20th century and, and kind of keep a look at the Penn School, but also at an incredibly important person that you talk about in this book, Joshua Blanton. I did not know much about this man until I read about him in this book, but enlighten us about how instrumental his singing was for the community, uh, the country, and essentially the world when looking at the First World War and the spirituals he sang. Oh, my. He is, he's my favorite. Um, mm-hmm. He's um, a um, one. He came from uh, Hampton, came down at the behest of um, Rosa Cooley to teach at Penn School. And he then uh, leaves to take over at Tom Voorhees. And um, before he leaves, he's um, asked I think it's by Peabody to help with the World War I. There were some issues with black and white soldiers. Uh, there were tensions there, and many black soldiers felt as if they were not being treated fairly. They even made a, a list of their complaints. And so he was asked to 
come there and sing songs, sing spirituals to soothe these men, you know. And um, as he as he went there, he did more than just that. He was able to use these songs to really address what was happening. And in the end, both black and white soldiers embraced these songs. And it and it gave those black soldiers sort of a sense of validation for their culture and their importance. And soon there were other Negro then song leaders that were um, paid by the U.S. Army to come in and teach spirituals. And there were even some in the U.S. Army songbook. Yeah, like we're saying, just using those songs to get through those difficult times with their you know, origin, obviously, in, in slavery and also more oppressive times, even in the future, looking at Jim Crow era times. Uh, but he also helped fun, uh, fundraise, essentially, too, by singing to help fundraise for Voorhees and, and other, um, other issues as well. Yes. Um, uh, you know, he was um, came a principal about 1922 or so. And he comes there and the Voorhees is in, is in trouble. And he comes there and he, he calls upon singing. He was a great tenor. And he forms his choir. And um, in fact, back at um, Penn School, there was a Penn School quartet of four men. And so he goes to Voorhees, forms the same quartet and also choirs, and he goes touring. And by going touring, he's able to raise money for these buildings that many of them still stand today. In fact, there's even a um, Blanton Hall there on the Voorhees campus right now. And um, unfortunately, it's kind of a funny story. I uh, visit Voorhees and walked into Blanton Hall, which is a dormitory. And I asked the person there who's working, you know, who is Blanton? (laughs) They did not know. (laughs) Some of the unfortunate things that happens with our history, right? We just, we don't. Indeed. (laughs) But of course, uh, critical what you're doing there and preserving it and telling these important stories. But let's move from the Second World War up through, you know, what was happening with the Harlem Renaissance and then also this resurgence of these spirituals from St. Helena Island uh, that came during the 1960s in the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, here you talk about Guy Carawan, responsible for the integration of those spirituals into the movement. Uh, how did he do this? What are some of those songs that we heard adapted during those times? Uh, probably the one that that was, there's several. Um, when that comes to mind is a welcome table, you know, doing the um, sit-ins. You're having people coming into these diners, sitting in. And the song talks about um, sitting, I'm going to sit at the uh, welcome table one of these days. And they're able to, use that to fit those sit-ins, you know, as they're being bombarded with um, things being poured upon and being hit, being spat upon. They begin to use these songs as their primary defense. And it's, you know, these spirituals are communal. As they served the slaves in those terrible times and gave them encouragement, it would encourage these college students you know, as they were singing these songs. And very, very powerful. Um, there's a song also, um, This May Be the Last Time, I Don't Know, that was done during the summer of 64 in Mississippi as college students came down to help with the voting rights. You know, there were, of course, some that were killed, unfortunately. And But this song would help them. Now, they weren't sure if tomorrow was going to be promised them. And they would sing the song, this may be the last time. I don't know. Interesting. And, and you mentioned that heated conflict sometimes would arise over folks wanting to sing songs of freedom compared to those of spirituals, you know, with their background, their origin in slavery. Can you talk about that clash and, and that kind of uh, that dilemma right there? Yes. Fascinating. I, I interviewed several civil rights uh, 
and leaders who, to, who talked about the fact that you know, during the 60, early, early on 60s, many Blacks uh, wanted to do the um, Ray Charles songs or the um, uh, songs that were more popular during that time, Nan Simone, you know, and not do the old spirituals because they were seen as being their mother songs, you know, grandparents' music, and being outdated. And an important figure, Bessie Jones, was there, and of course, Guy Carowin, who who fought for the fact that these songs, you know, had had been important a century ago and, and could still serve that same purpose. And of course, uh, one of the most, uh, I guess, the, the most popular of the song, songs, and we shall overcome, from John's Allen, where Karen uh, was, became the soundtrack, you know. And so these songs, you know, Keep your eyes on the prize. You know, all of these songs became pivotal for the movement. Very fascinating. Look at those origin stories for sure. Uh, especially, you know, just look at how valuable this book is, I feel like, to the musical canon and to ensuring that we have these stories and, they're, you know, we have all the details and the history and the origins for these stories and these spirituals. Uh, but speaking of the, you know, the history, what do you look at the future? What does it look like for this music, for the culture? You describe some moments in the book about the loss of popularity for some of the culture, such as even, you know, monthly community singing events, uh, you know, especially with the youth of the community. But there have been investments made in the creation of the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Corridor from North Carolina, Florida. Uh, how do you see the future looking for this culture? Well, you know, it's um, Galagichi culture is really at a, a renaissance. It is just very, very popular now. And um, we have younger people who are embracing, you know, I um, had a course taught at like, Coastal Carolina University where I used to teach. And uh, we taught a, a, a language course. And we had many Gullah students there from Charleston and so forth. And they really uh, were surprised to learn that what they were speaking all this time was a language. And so... There is a, a resurgence of interest in this culture. Now, these songs, you know, uh, we're trying to find, in fact, we, we just did this new app. There's a, um, the University of South Carolina, there's this mobile app that will uh, guide tourists through Beaufort, South Carolina. And we did these songs. And so you will hear kind of newer versions of these songs, you know, to kind of attract a, um, a newer audience. And so these songs, I think will always be there. And, you know, um, the good thing about them is once you've heard one line, you know how a song goes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so they're very catchy. And, and again, the sense of communal, you know, you can't sing it by yourself, but you can sing with a group, a sense of call and response, you know. Well, Professor Crawford, I think we covered a, a great cross-section of your new book. Was there anything else that you wanted to add or think that people needed to know about when looking at your book, Gullah Spirituals? I, I hope that the um, everyday reader can enjoy it. And that was my intent, that it's not just for scholars or those who are musicians. And I do hope that you will just see how seminal Galagichi culture is to the American story and how it's always been there. Not always known as Galagichi. And hopefully we, we put that name of those, those two words back into the American thought and, and consciousness. Very good. Very important point there. And an enriching conversation about an important piece of our culture. Professor Eric Sean Crawford is the author of the newly published Gullah Spirituals Out Now from the USC Press. Great talking with you, sir. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Professor Crawford and to our listeners. And stay tuned for our upcoming episodes as we continue our summer listening series. (laughs) 